and we uh, try to meet the first Monday of every month, um, 7 p.m. Pacific uh, on Zoom. Thank you so much. It's, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us tonight on Transpositive. You're welcome, and thank you so much again for having me. Really Thanks. appreciate it. All right, so I'm going to stop recording. KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio is hiring for a development director. Our development director oversees KBOO's fundraising, donor and business outreach, and leads the development team with light supervisory duties. Our ideal candidate has at least four years of proven development experience in the nonprofit sector, preferably with significant foundation and major donor fundraising work. For a complete job description and instructions on how to apply, visit kboo.fm employment. Apply by February 24th. KBOO is an affirmative action and equal opportunity employer. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen.
the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back. Junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the touch truck repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. A crazy lady living in a bag, eating out of garbage pails. Used to be a fag hag, such a dance to tango. Skipped the life and dangle. A circus princess seemed to lost her senses. Down at the peep show, watching all the creeps, so she could tell her stories to the girls back home. She went to the city and got so, so, so did it. She had to get a pimp, she couldn't make it on her own. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. Trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. My brother's doing fast on my mother's TV. Says she watches too much. It's just not healthy. All my children in the daytime, Dallas at night. Can't even see the game or the Sugar Ray fight. The bill collectors, they ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double digit inflation. Can't take the train to the job. There's a strike at the station. Me on King Kong, standing on my back. Can't stop to turn around. Broke my sacroiliac, a mid range migraine, cancer membrane. Sometimes I think I'm going insane. I swear I might hijack a plane. Don't push me. Call, I'm close to the edge. I'm trying. Not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It is Hard Knock Radio, Davey D, hanging out with you this afternoon. I started off the show with a song that is not only in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it's also um, in the Congressional Record, I believe. I, I hope I got the right name of it. Um, but it's a landmark song, a transformative song, a song called The Message. Uh, we associate the song with Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five, and in particular, Melly Mel, who delivers some scorching rhymes um, that, you know, that have been immortalized. This is a timeless song. Um, why we associate it with Melly and Grandmaster Flash, there's an interesting backstory, starting with the fact that the group did not want to do this song. That's the first thing, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And second, everything but the last stanza wasn't written by the group at all. It was written by a gentleman by the name of Ed Fletcher, who um, is underrated. His story has not really been highlighted and his contribution to black music, black culture, and to hip hop is almost overlooked. He passed a couple of weeks ago. We wanted to look back at his life and pay tribute. And so I asked a longtime historian and author scholar. His name is Jay Kwan from the Foundation. Um, if you never heard of his work, I definitely encourage you to uh, check it out. He goes deep, deep, and, <laughs> and deeper into the, um, into the lives of these people that help shape this vibrant culture. And so, Jay Kwan, you were doing work with Ed Fletcher, and I wanted to have you on because uh, if anybody is familiar with his work and contributions, it would be you. So welcome to the show. And let's start off with talking about the significance of the song I just played, The Message. Hey, 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 Dave, good, good to be here. Um, the significance of The Message, you know, The Message, uh, Really, it was the game changer. You know, there's a handful of songs in the first three or four years of recorded rap, you know, recorded rap starting around September or so of, of 79, maybe a month or so before that. And, you know, a handful of songs that were very pivotal, um, you know, Rapper's Delight, Planet Rock, uh, The Message definitely being one of, of a few in the first couple of years. And because it was the first uh, song of social consciousness on the level that it was, it really changed the genre. 
you had um, Brother D and Collective Effort had How We Gonna Make the Black Nation Rise. That was early, maybe 1980 or so. And it was a bit militant. Um, and William Waring, Billy Bill, wrote a few songs for Curtis Blow around 1980 on his debut album, uh, Hard Times being one with the first cover in rap, um, covered by Run DMC a few years later. They, they got into the surface level, uh, a little bit of socially conscious lyrics, but to paint a real grim picture of what the ghetto was like in uh, in 1982 or so, the message was definitely the song that it changed the genre. It was the first time somebody really got that vivid with what ghetto life was in, in the Reagan era. You know, it's interesting because around that time, a lot of people, well, well let's just start off with the fact, and you tell me if you agree, in many aspects, hip hop and rap in particular was a cry to be seen and to be heard um, at a time when there was a policy of abandonment, which is um, excellently detailed in Jeff Chang's book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, uh, where it was like these people who are living in abject poverty in places like New York are expendable. We just won't, we'll ignore them in every shape, form, and way. Um, policy-wise, um, systemically in terms of economic opportunities, all that sort of stuff. And it seemed like there was a story to be told and the message captured that. W would that be an accurate understanding? Extremely accurate, extremely accurate. Before the message, you know, most songs were party-oriented. The tracks were, you know, very much in the vein of disco, which was kind of just dying out in the early 80s. So they were very, you know, very much about partying and have a good time. Party people throw your hands in the air. You know, braggadocious rhymes about cars and money and women, uh, the first few records. So yeah, there were there was that open space to say, hey, you know, look around. This is what's going on. And you know, uh Ed Fletcher, he, he wrote that song in his mother's basement. And, you know, he said that you know, the inspiration for it was just kind of you know, this was in Elizabeth, New Jersey, I believe just looking around and listening. He said he, he heard a, a, a broken a broken bottle, you know, in the distance, and he just started writing. And that was the reality, of, you know, because the first line is broken glass everywhere. Um, and that was the reality. So to answer your question, certainly, there was there was definitely that 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 unheard voice, and um, and he, he, he filled it in. How did, um, why do you think there was a break in terms of music, Black music really bringing a, a social message a la people like Stevie Wonder, who actually did a rap song, believe it or not, early on, We Wear the Crown with um, mm -hmm. Gary, Gary Bird. Bird. Yeah, people right. should look that up. It's a rare song, but he was early on. Um, but, you know, you had Stevie Wonder and you had Curtis Mayfield and, of course, Marvin Gaye. And the history shows that all of them had to fight to be able to record songs that brought that message. And as their pop, you know, Gamble Huff would be the other group of people as well. And then it just seemed to be a break. What do you think it was? Was it disco or something else that interfered with that, um, with that trajectory? Yeah, I think it was, I think disco was, was a factor, um, more of a minor factor. You know, Spike Lee once famously, and to me truthfully said, that you could measure the the progress of urban communities by the music they made, you know, going all the way back to Curtis Mayfield and before. And if you listen to what was being said, you could kind of, it was like a thermometer of, of where we were. And I think um, because of the 80s, the 80s was a decade of excess and partying and having a good time. Even though Reaganomics was around the corner, I, I think that, you know, the struggles of the 60s and 70s were you know we were healing from those so even to listen to a song like good time by chic when they say uh clams on the half shell and roller skates you know listen to good times you know right there 79 right before 80 hits you listen to that and songs like ain't no stopping us now you know is this upwardly mobile uh anthem for for, for urban uh people people of color in the uh, in the early 80s so you listen to what was going on it was almost like the struggle was abandoned and it was more like okay we're entering a new phase of paradigm shift and it's about good times and, and things like that so i think that those messages were dropped because we you know 
we were kind of, you know, sticking our butts a little bit. You know, that's what the music would suggest if you listen to anything from 79 to about 82. How much of that was, you know, people being able to be upwardly mobile versus just folks going through hard times and wanting to escape that reality? I think I think that was some of it as well. Um, you make a great point. The '60s was a very turbulent time. You had a lot of assassinations, and you know, um, as far as you know, in, in the black civil or struggle or civil rights movement, and you know, even pre- you know, your president, you know, uh, the '60s were turbulent, and then the '70s, you know, still was was the healing of that. And into the '70s, I think, as you said, people just they were taking a breather. But I think in addition to that breather, you know, we started having some um, opportunities as, as people of color and people in urban areas that weren't necessarily available before. So even going back, if you look at, uh, you know, I think everything has a bit of truth in it. You go back and look at, I'm going to get you sucker. And there's a part where they do a thing. It's supposed to be like the black Panthers or an organization like that. And when the brother gets out of jail, he say, Hey, what happened to the brothers? What happened? And he said, Hey, they all got government jobs. Mm-hmm. Funny as that was, you know, by that time we were, we were making some strides in corporate America and we were um, assimilating a little more into the mainstream culture and we, we had a little bit of disposable income and you know, 2.5 kids and the car and the picket fence the American dream, we, we were chasing that a little bit more than we might have been in the previous decades We're talking with Jay Kwan um, of the Foundation um, hip hop historian and author um, somebody who we encourage you to check out his work, um, he dwells deep into a lot of aspects, uh, especially of hip hop in its pioneering days. Um, who is Ed Fletcher? We started off by talking about the message, a landmark song, which has been sampled and, as I noted, has been um, entered not only into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but into the congressional record. Um, so it has some very distinct honors. And I start off by saying this was a song that, you know, the group, Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel. They were like, we're not trying to do no song like this. Um, (laughs) But it was written by Ed Fletcher. Who is he and why is he an important figure? Ed Fletcher, he's a a multi-dimensional cat, man. Um, Ed Fletcher, a.k.a. Duke Booty, his performing name, he came out of the tradition of jazz. He grew up on jazz music and he played with Charles Ireland James M. Toomey, you know, he was a big fan of uh, Miles Davis, um, played with uh, Edwin Starr, uh, all before there was, you know, any such thing as rap music, you know, as we know it in in modern day form. Wait a second. So he played with James M. Toomey. I didn't realize that. Yes, he, yes, he did. If you go to, if you go to my website, uh, foundationhiphop.com, you go to interviews, there's an extensive interview with uh, me and Ed Fletcher from 2007. Probably we had a three-hour interview. We talked about everything. And it's probably the most he's ever shared with anybody about his whole story. And I will send that to you so you can link that to your platforms as well. It's very informative. So I bring that up because James M. Toomey is often overlooked as well. Um, You know, James M. Toomey, we know him from the song Juicy. It was sampled and popularized for a generation um, with the notorious B.I.G. song, Juicy. Yes, but James and Toomey is a cultural, you know, phenomenon. I mean, advocate, part of the US organization, played with Miles Davis. And I bring yes. this up because you're talking about a social, um, social awareness, a unapologetic politic, um, and a determination to fight, fight for freedom using you know, our, our, you know, cultural expression as a, as a vehicle. So if Duke Booty is, is alongside a James M. Toomey, um, it seems like James M. Toomey is not going to surround himself with people who are lackeys. Not at all. And these were all, uh, you know, call it woke today, but these were brothers who were, you know, socially aware of what was going on um, in their times. And, and that's definitely who he was. And like you said, M. Toomey being a disciple um, of of Miles and Duke Booty, uh, you know, actually meeting Miles later, and the last album that Miles Davis made, I think, it was the Doobop album. There's a song on there called Duke Booty, so you know they they had a relationship, you know, before Miles passed, 
and Miles had kind of accepted uh, rap music. He embraced it. You know, he even had a song with uh, the great Easy Mo B. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, so, so Ed Fletcher, you know, he came from that background, um, and he became a session musician with Sugar Hill Records when Sylvia Robinson started to put out rap recordings. You know, back then you couldn't sample. It wasn't something you could legally uh, do yet, and you couldn't really physically do it in, in a modern day sense. So they would just take these, you know, popular break beats and have a band replay uh, these beats. And um, at first, on Rappers Delight, it was positive force. Uh, Philly who made uh, We Got the Funk. Your 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 phone went in and out a little. If you could just kind of switch a little bit up, uh, Jaquan. Okay, is it any better now? Sounds good right now. There you go. Okay, so so yes, uh, you know like Positive Force, that band played on Rapper's Delight. That's the band from Philadelphia that made We Got the Funk. And then for later releases, Sylvia Robinson used her, her old house band, Wood, Brass, and Steel, hmm. um, or members from that band. And then uh, Ed Fletcher joined those guys around 1980. The first song he ever played on was Freedom, my Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, where they actually replayed uh, Get Up and Dance by the group Freedom. And then he also played on sequ- uh, the records by Sequence, uh, the later records by Sequence. He played on Eighth Wonder. He played on Apache, you know, all the big uh, Sugar Hill Gang songs. And then the songs before the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Birthday Party, and all, you know, he was he was a member of the house band. And he said from the beginning, he, he said he didn't respect rap at first, like many musicians didn't, but he said when he saw Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five record, and the way that they would pass the mic between each other and split syllables and phrases between each other, he started to respect it as an art form. And he said for years, I can do that. You know, I, I can do what they're doing. I'm going to do that. And the message was was what he came up with. You know, we often talk about um, hip hop being an extension of, you know, reggae and toasting and, you know, and we, we, we look and celebrate and uplift its Caribbean and Jamaican roots. Um, I've often maintained that hip hop is, you know, is, is definitely an extension of jazz. And, and it's interesting because you're talking about some primary jazz musicians in the form of Mtumi who forms into funk. Um, you're talking about the attitude, you know, which is interesting, you know, when you were talking about, he was like, yeah, we will kind of do this. That it kind of reminds me of some of the jazz musicians who started off with James Brown. It was kind of like, yeah, well, we, you know, we do this jazz thing. We, I guess we'll kind of see what you're doing. And it sounds like that was kind of the same way, but I think he respected or did Duke see uh, hip hop, especially with Grandmaster Flash as an extension of what they were doing in the, in the jazz realm. I believe he did. I think he saw the improvisation and, you know, um, almost like the, the scat type uh, cadence of the MCs. He definitely, like I said, he, he said when he saw the Sugar Hill Gang record, it was just a different process. You know, they had to do a little more punching in and double takes, but he said when he saw the Furious Five, and like I said, you know, anybody who's heard a Furious Five record, especially a record like Super Rapping, um, you know, they were really on that song, they said we're going to make five MCs sound like one. They really do. They split phrases between each other and trade off. And he was very impressed by that. And he did see a, a kinship or similarity in what he was doing in the jazz world and, and the world that he came from. So he respected it early on, even with the beatbox. When he saw Flash with the, the electronic drum machine that Flash called the beatbox, um, he said that when he saw Flash with it, he told Flash, I'm going to get one and I'm going to kick your butt on it. And he said that one night after a, a show, um, him and Flash, him and Flash had an impromptu battle on on their on their beat machines, and he says he beat Flash. So you know, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that. But he was he was a hip hop guy. That's what people need to know. As much as he was a band member, um, he was very much into what hip hop was. You know, programming drum machines and the like, and you know, became a record label owner later on, which we could get to if time permits, and signed some really great artists and put out some really historic rap records in that drum machine era. Wow, that's I didn't know that. And so this is interesting coming from a guy who initially didn't respect it um, and didn't respect it primarily because of uh, Sugar Hill Gang, which was a put together group, which a lot of people don't know. It's kind of like we grabbed this guy, got somebody's cousin. Let's put them there together. And, you know, of course, it was a landmark song. But in New York City in 1979, when that came out, 
people that were into hip hop actually were kind of upset because it was like, this is not what we do. This is not how we sound. This is not who we are. But, you know, but if they're making records, I guess maybe we should go along with that. That's interesting because, you know, all of the, all of the guys who were there before rap records, they, they always say that they were approached early to do rap records. Even Scorpio from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five said Bobby Robinson, you used to come to the Apollo or um, not the Apollo, I'm sorry, the Autobahn Ballroom and see them performing and, and, and try to put a contract in their face before Sugar Hill. And they mm -hmm. said, no, nah, man, who would want to hear us talking over somebody else's records? So even the rappers didn't see a great value in what they were doing. As far as the Sugar Hill Gang thing, totally agree with that. I think that, and I think me and you talked about that on social media recently. I think that a lot of the Bronx pioneers saw the Sugar Hill Gang as coming from out of nowhere. Um, like these guys are from Jersey. We've been doing this as a chitlin circuit of people who do this, and we all know each other. Who are these guys? But in defense of Sugar Hill Gang, I will say outside of Hank, who actually was probably the most authentic as the hip hop world coming from being a bouncer at the Sparkle and, and being a uh, manager for the Cold Crush Brothers, outside of Hank, who didn't write at all. We all know that story. Um, I will say Master G and Wonder Mike were actual rhymers already in Jersey as members of uh, Phase 2 and Sound on Sound. If you listen to Rappers Delight, they, they actually shout their crews out. So they they were, they you know, they because, you know, Jersey is a stone's throw away from New York. The tapes got to Jersey, and these guys, they, they actually were rhyming when uh, Sylvia, as you said, she put them together. Exactly. Yeah, but the styles were different, though. Oh, 100%. And, that, no, and that's what I'm talking about. I mean, no, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, it's the cadence, the complexity, and I think, as you pointed out with Grandmaster Flash and them, um, what impressed Ed Booty was this dextrosity on the mic. You know, yes. um, a lot of their songs, from what I understand, were done in almost one take. You know, there was no punching most, in. It's like you, you go in the studio and you do it. And I think that in itself is impressive when you listen to the complexity of what they were doing. Oh, very much so. And I think that's what caught everybody about them. You know, all the groups harmonized and things like that. Um, and many of them did, you know, they, they may have passed the mic between each other, but the, the, the tightness of a, of a group like, like the Furious Five, listening to Flash to the Beat, you know, either the Sugar Hill version or the, the, the live version that was recorded at Bronx River, the way that they harmonized and passed the mic, um, definitely super rapping, super rapping, 79 and Joy Records, great record. And one of the greatest parts of super rapping that I try to tell everybody is the 12 minute version of super rapping for the last verse when Melly Mel comes on. You know, the song is basically just them bragging about hopping in the OJ, which is like a, the Uber of, of yesterday, uh, uh, um, is what uh, OJ was, basically a car service. Hopping in the OJ, getting a fly girl, you know, um, I got this many cars, whatever, you know, the braggadocia of 79. But at the end, Melly Mel said this rhyme, a child is born with no state of mind. And they really went unnoticed but it was really out of place in that song. It's like everybody else rapped about money and girls, and this guy gave this dissertation on ghetto life that nobody paid attention to until, you know, three years later, 1982, here comes the message, and that verse, the only verse that that wasn't written by Duke Booty, what, what Melly Mel calls the, the ghetto Bible, that verse was tagged on to the back of the message. Talking with Jay Kwan, um, looking back at the life of Duke Booty, who recently passed, um, and his contribution to hip hop, and and you know, and what led up to this transformative moment when the message, um, you know, dropped the song that he wrote. Duke Booty was also a school teacher, right? And so, can we talk about that aspect of his career, and 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 if that informed um, his desire to make sure that there was a message in the music. Yes, he was. He was a school teacher, and um, I, I want to say he came from a tradition of school teachers. I want to say his mother taught. Um, but yes, he was a school teacher after the sh after his music. You know, he, he did an album on Mercury after Sugar Hill, and he he began teaching um, college uh, courses in 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 New Jersey uh, for for a while. And uh, I, I, I want to say he taught some kind of sociology classes. I'm not 100% sure on that. But he was a professor and an author. He wrote, uh, he wrote a book called The Yo Culture, which is a very, a very good um, you know, piece of uh, fiction 
a very good novel. And he was he had he also completed a novel called Who Shot Duke Booty that's unreleased, and hopefully his estate or someone will put that out. But he he was a teacher, and he always was in that vein. If you go back and look at, there's a song called Sun City. It was about as an anti-apartheid song, mm-hmm. kind of like the We Are the World of of the apartheid you know movement. And it had you know Stephen Van Zant from from um, I, I can't think of the band. Um, I know you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, born in the USA. That, that uh, Springsteen. Springsteen's yeah. E Street Band. That's where Van Zandt is from. Um, you, you had Melly Mel was on the song, but Duke Booty was on the soundtrack. If you look at the video, there's a part where he's actually talking to a, a group of people. He said that was a real scene. It wasn't. He was actually doing like a little teaching impromptu thing, like in a park or something. Um, that was a big part of who he was. He was an educator, and um. Like a multifaceted guy, you know. When 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 he, the day that I found that he passed, you know, I, the, one of the first things I said was, "Wow, this guy wrote the most important rap record, or one of the most. I would say the most important rap record in the history of the genre." And nobody even knows what he looks like. Nobody knows who he is. You know, there's a guy who, like I said, he had a prolific jazz and funk career, started Beauty and the Beat records, and signed DJ Cheese and Word of Mouth, the Incredible King Cut record. You know, he played drum machine and keyboards on that. Uh, the Z3 and Wait, wait, he record. did? Yeah, if you go back to Beauty and the Beat records, he, probably seven or eight releases were on Beauty and the Beat, but he discovered DJ Cheese um, and, 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 and put him with word of mouth, and they made King Cut. And if you, if you look at any, any Beauty and the Beat records, you'll see Duke Booty Productions, and you'll see his name all over it as the executive producer. That was his label. After he left Stringer Hill, he started his, his own independent rap label, and he signed the Z3MCs who did Triple Threat, that was a group from Baltimore, very rare at the time for 85, 86 for a group that's not from New York to be signed to a northern-based label like that. Um, Z3MCs, um, quite a few uh, point-blank MCs. There's probably seven or eight in his discography on Beauty and the Beat. Those records are highly sought after today and really celebrated, especially in the UK. But there were big records here in the States. Yeah, definitely. I, I did not realize. So he... Uh, man, his, so he he may have really beaten Flash <laughs> in the beatbox thing if he was programming those songs. Yeah, if you go back and listen to King Cut, you know, which ended up being picked up by Profile Records. Um, but King Cut, like I said, the Z3MCs, their their record, um, even Coast to Coast by uh, by word of mouth. He did the he did the drum programming and played the keyboards on all of those songs. Um, and he learned his drum programming from the great Keith LeBlanc, who was the drummer for Sugar Hill Records. You know, like I said, he came out of that band. That was a great band. That, that was a, a, a monumental band. And everybody that played in that band went on to do something great afterwards. But yeah, and then like I said, uh, you know, he signed to Mercury about 84. And he had a song called Live Wire, which was like an electro song. It did it, it did marginally well, better overseas than it did here. But he had a, a whole album on Mercury as, as an artist. You know, he sang a little bit on it and, uh, you know, drum machine and, you know, he, he played percussion. But if you go back and listen to uh, Eighth Wonder, one of the bigger Sugar Hill Gang records. There's a very rare instrumental version, if you got a test pressing of it. Um, but originally, I think Sugar Hill Groove or something was on the B side. But if you, you can go to YouTube and type in Eighth Wonder Instrumental, and if you listen to it, two amazing things about that: the percussion in it is Fletcher killing it, and the ad lives by the Furious Five. Sylvia would Sylvia Robinson, the CEO of the label, would bring the Furious Five in to do what they call a party track, and they would do their little, you know signature things um and it really showed you the greatness of both of those entities on that on that song how you you're good friends with uh members of uh grandmaster flash melly mel in particular at the time somebody writing your rhymes was a no-no i mean you know i mean they are actual you know before records you look at the rhyme books you look at my rhyme books there are references like you don't bite and you certainly didn't read and you didn't have somebody write your rhymes, right? That, those were like the cardinal sins. How did the group feel? How did Melly feel um, about Duke Booty writing this record? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting conversation, a ghostwriter uh, conversation and just the, somebody else writing, even if it's credited and not a ghost. Uh, that's always been some taboo thing. In, in, in this genre and me me, you and Mark Skills have had some very interesting conversations about that I'll say I definitely agree there was a time before records you know rap is such a personal thing 
and rooted in so much braggadocia that the thing for the the kind of MCs who would never it, they would see it as sacrilegious to have somebody write a rhyme for them um, because it's so personal. If you're bragging about I can do this and I can do that, it's very personal. So for, to have somebody else say that for you is seen as a no-no in certain circles because we know that Busy B sold rhymes. I'm sorry, Spoonie G sold rhymes to Busy B. But Busy B is not revered as that kind of MC. Busy B is the live guy. He's the MC that does it, you know, a great job live. So even a song like Suicide, Busy B's biggest song was written by Melly Mel. So nobody took points away from Busy because there's not that expectation. Same thing with Curtis Blow. His biggest, uh, one of his biggest songs was Basketball, written by William Waring, Billy Bill. Uh, AJ, uh, not AJ, I'm sorry. If I Rule the World was written by DJ AJ, his DJ. Right, Again, wasn't, not, wasn't, the, wasn't the breaks also written? Or I it, think he wrote the breaks, but Christmas Rapping was written by J.B. Moore and the guys right. from Billboard that helped sign Curtis Blow. So again, with Curtis Blow, and this is no disrespect at all, he's more seen as a recording artist. He was a great MC, but there's not an expectation that he's writing, you know, this Melly Mel level of rhymes. So that to, to get more in point to your question, once this thing became a industry, I think it, it became a, a thing where you're not in the streets trying to say the best rhymes anymore. When you're recording for Paul Winley, um, a CEO of uh, Winley of, Paul, of Winley Records, um, Sylvia Robinson, Bobby Robinson, these are people who have chops in the in the music industry. I mean, you know, Bobby Robinson, you know, just uh, signed Gladys Knight and the Pips way back in the day. Sylvia Robinson is an R&B artist who sold millions of records on her own and signed the moments who became Ray Gubbin and Brown. These people are are very steeped in the music business. So you weren't gonna come in and just try to spit the best rhyme. They're gonna tell you, hey, we gotta put some melody in there. You need a hook. Mm -hmm. So once this thing became an industry, it became a little more accepted that somebody else might write your your song or help you. Ave Wonder, uh Cheryl the Pearl from Sequence wrote a great deal of Ave Wonder for the Sugar Hill game. So because it became a thing where you need a song, right? Sylvia Robinson wasn't going to let you come in and do a song that wasn't commercially, you know, uh, advantageous to her. She wanted to get on the radio and sell right. records to adults and kids. So to answer your question, it became a little more lax once this thing became an industry. So you got Can You Rock It Like This by Run DMC being written by LL, and nobody looks at Run DMC funny. But if you Man, you you pulling out all the ghostwriting things. I, mean. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you real quick, man. You know something that I, I probably should have known. Um, Billy Bill, William William Waring, who again who wrote all those songs for for uh, Curtis Blow. I was talking to him one time. I called him a ghostwriter. He corrected me. He said, "Well, I'm not a ghostwriter." He said, "Ghost is not credited." He said, "Ghost, you would just assume that a person wrote a rhyme and somebody else is writing for them." and you don't know. He's like, well, me, if you look on Love Bugs, Starsky Records, or even a couple of Fat Boys records, where he didn't write rhymes, but he helped write the melody to the song Fat Boys. He mm -hmm. said, if you look in the credits, it'll say W. Waring. If you look at Sweet G's game people, Games People Play, he said, you see W. Waring. I wrote those songs, and my name is there, so it's not a ghost. But yeah, um, unless you're really looking at the credits and paying attention, which as kids, most people weren't. I'm a kind of a weird kid back then. I looked at the credits, and I knew early on when I saw... Um, you know, Smith on there, right? Um, uh, J J T Smith on. Can you rock like this? You know, L L wrote that. What, what so the you know, um, so mm -hmm. the thing, the thing with that though, and you know, the music industry has always been treacherous. Yes. And so one of the ways in which black artists, in particular, were often robbed, was that somebody who didn't have anything to do with the songs on the writing credit. Where they, could where they could legally uh, claim points. And so there were all sorts of stories. Uh, and I'm, I imagine even through the rap era, but definitely before then, uh, you know, a lot of black artists wrote songs and all of a sudden there was a white name next to it, you know, and that person was collecting royalty checks talking about he wrote the song, even though he didn't. Um, so so that's a steep tradition. So, yeah, I think some people, if they saw those names, either they thought that was the government name of the rapper mm -hmm. <laughs> or mm -hmm. just somebody was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to take my cut, you know, because, you know, some, a lot of those independent labels is quiet. It's kept where, you know, they, they have some very questionable backers, if we should say. 
you know they did they, they, you know they, organized they really crime did. syndicate is all up in the mix <laughs> oh definitely that's the, the root of the music industry and you're so right about those names there's an episode of sopranos where i can't remember what remember what character but he was bragging about all it might have been the character named hesh but he was bragging about his money he had and tony soprano said oh that's because you know you got a group of five black guys singing it. you put your name on it and you know he laughed about it and i think on one of the episodes one of the offspring of one of those people from the band was trying to get his money from Hash. But I say that to say, yes, in that organized crime thing, um, if, if there was any la money laundering or whatever going on, you know, allegedly, um, yeah, somebody would put their name on a record because you had to understand too, these young artists, black or white, didn't know what publishing was. You know, you get an eager kid that just wants to record and they record, they, you know, they don't know about BMI. A lot of times the, or ASCAP, a lot of times the lawyer for the label is also the lawyer for the artist, which is an incredible conflict of interest. But as you know, you sign a contract 17, 18, or even older, if you don't know the music business, you don't know that that's the bread and butter, the residuals. Right. That's how you get paid on the record. And nobody knew that. And more to the point of the names on the records, like I said, these records were mainly teenagers going and paying their $3.99 for a rap record. And most of us just weren't going deep enough to look in the parenthesis to see who wrote it. We just wanted to hear the song. Right. And definitely in 1982, you know, the, the information we have now, um, definitely people didn't have at the time. Just getting on a record was the holy grail. It um, really was. Let me ask you this. You know, with Ed Fletcher writing that song, The Message, it opened up a gateway for a lot of other groups to start really putting social... Uh, definition to their songs and one of the groups um, which you also are very familiar with that that came out the gate doing this was a group Houdini and just coincidentally um, maybe about a month before Fletcher's death we lost um, uh, Ecstasy, Ecstasy? Yes, sir. from you know John, interesting John Fletcher his name his name right Fletcher that's right yeah yeah so no relation um, but right. sharing the same last name um, and you know, for people who don't know, Ecstasy's the guy with the cowboy hat. Houdini right. got a lot of credit for being a group that brought social messages. Can we talk a little bit about them? And did they were they influenced by Flash and them or Fletcher, or was there ever any connection between the two? Oh, definitely. Uh, Jalil is certainly a fan of uh, of, of Melly Mel. In fact. You know, the first record Houdini ever recorded was Magic's Wand. It was a tribute to Mr. Magic, who uh, Jalil was working with on the radio, um, you know, Mr. Magic, legendary on WPLS in New York. And uh, earlier, um, you know, had his own um, pirate radio program um, with the world, you know, same station as the world's famous Supreme team. But either way, uh, that was the first song that they wrote and when they were doing it um melly mel was one of the people that was in uh talks to to write that song for magic uh jalil ended up doing it he ran it by mel you know just to get mel's praises and mel said hey man you know y'all got a hit so they had an early relationship but definitely jalil and, and actually were both fans of um of grandmaster flash and the furious five so yeah songs like friends um growing up um, even one love, you know, uh, they never, Houdini never had, because their image wouldn't have matched it, they never had the gritty, gritty, you know, uh, you know, a child is born lyrics, but they definitely had the social things that everybody could relate to, which is a reason why many of our parents who may not have been fans of rap, they were fans of Houdini because they looked almost like they could stand on stage with Frankie Beverly and Mays, like you said, the leather Zorro hat that the ecstasy had. And, um, the subject matter was something that our, our, our parents could relate to universal in that and then Larry Smith the great producer was providing them sonically with with music not just beats you know Larry Smith who pr produced for both Run DMC and Houdini he would provide Run DMC with mainly beats not a lot of melody but he saw that Houdini was a different kind of group visually and in other ways and he gave them the actual music so something like One Love was something that you know our parents could 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 get down to where they might not be able to get down to sucker MCs you know so definitely <laughs> there was definitely a um, influence from from right. the message. I, I think the message influenced just about everybody. It came to a point where once rap became an album medium in uh, 83, 84, and rappers started making legitimate albums, and when I say legitimate albums, not the compilations that Sylvia was doing where she would put out an album 
and it was just no new songs on it, like real albums with different songs with different subject matter. At one point, almost everybody had a socially conscious song. Even a comical group like the Fat Boys had songs like Don't Be Stupid, you know? Right, right. So I, I think and everybody was influenced through that by Fletcher. And to go further, even the group, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, specifically Mel, Mel became a politically, uh, politically conscious rhymer, Beat Street Breakdown, White Line, songs that he did without Fletcher. But I wouldn't say Mel probably wouldn't have went as hard in that vein um, if if not for the message. And the message is 99% Fletcher. Right. So it's interesting. We often talk about the abandonment of the elders when it came to hip hop. And it was it, it definitely more along the civil rights generation. Yes. But if we're looking at the black power generation, um, the footprints are big and the impact is great. So we're talking about if we had a tree, we're talking about Miles Davis to James M. Toomey and James M. Toomey to Ed Fletcher and Ed Fletcher, you know, kicking open the doors for this uh, message wrapping alongside them. You would have Gary Bird and Stevie Wonder who all jumped into that fray. But it's Fletcher that really um, brings the heat and the sensibility. And more importantly, the relationship. We, you know, we, he becomes friends with these folks. So, I'm sure in the back room, there's some political education that's going on as well. Certainly, 100. percent And and these were, you know, these were people who who read the newspaper. Like you know, Fletcher would say, you know, as a youngster, he was reading you know five or six different newspapers. Um, when I questioned Melly Mel about B Street Breakdown, some of the lyrics in it, you know, for, for him to be in his, you know, late teens, early 20s when he was writing stuff about, you know, newspaper burns in the sand and the headlines say man destroys man. And I asked, where did you get that from? He's like, well, you know, I watched the news. I was, you know, I read the paper, you know. So it was a certain kind of cat that was going to make that kind of record. And of course, the last poets and Gil Scott Heron um, mm. are in the mix early too, even though, it, and, and of course, the Watch Prophets even though the different cadences and it wasn't, you know, they weren't claiming to be MCs or, or be into hip hop, still the influence, the influence is, is, you know, undeniable. Yeah. And of course the last poets with, um, uh, sporty, the pimp, um, yeah, guys, lightning rod, lightning, lightning rod. rod right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can, I can never pronounce the brother's name from the last poets cause it was a member of the last poets that did lightning rod. Um, I'm going to remember yeah. it's, I'm going to remember his name in a minute, but um, of course, you know, that had a big influence as well. Definitely. You know, as we close out, Jaquan, uh, first of all, let everybody know how they can get the information, see the articles. And, uh, you know, one last question, because you mentioned about the band, Keith mm -hmm. LeBlanc, Ed Fletcher, um, Doug Wimbish, Doug, uh, Reggie, <laughs> Reggie Griffin. Yeah. Incredible band. So this is way before the roots, almost 15 years before we start seeing the roots. How important was that to have live music in the mix and um, and that being a foundation for rap, even though everything that we did was based up on the breakbeat and, you know, and, and playing these records, two turntables and a mic, ain't no band behind us. But obviously live musicianship is always, it seems like it's always been a cornerstone in hip hop, whether we care to admit it or not. It's funny you say that because I would say it's always been a cornerstone in recorded hip hop, um, and that's where a split happens. And as you know, as a non-New Yorker, I'm a, I'm a Virginian, and I had to learn this. You know, I had to learn my history a little backwards. So for me, okay, the, the reason I'm such a proponent of the Sugar Hill Gang is because it's the first rap record I heard. So it was the template for me, and that's all I had to go on until I heard the Treacherous Three and the Furious Five. So, and I'm, I'm going to make a point and wrap it up real quick. So. I learned by, you know, 81, 82, oh man, you know, these guys are a little more complex than what I'm used to from the Sugar Hill Gang. No disrespect to the Sugar Hill Gang, that's what the first thing that I heard. And maybe King Tim somewhere in that same mix is what I heard. So by then, like I said, you had to use a band because you weren't gonna go into Sylvia Robinson's studio and say, hey, I wanna use this record, you know, right off the record. It just, it couldn't be done, um, not quite yet. So what I found out in, in, in meeting people like Troy Smith and other New Yorkers, and even yourself, is that a lot of New Yorkers didn't necessarily love the rap record. Um, when I talked to Raheem, he said, I, I said, what's your favorite record about your group? He said, none of them. I didn't like, I didn't like the rap records. I like what we were doing in the clubs and the parks. So there's a whole, a, a lot of New Yorkers, the, the New Yorkers and the people in the tri-states who had the, I would say were blessed to be able to see people at the T-Connection and the Fever and all this and actually see uh, 
somebody spending two copies of, you know, uh, Mardi Gras or whatever it was, and see the MCs rhyming over it. When those guys heard Rabbit Delight, they I can understand why they may not have liked it because it is a little uh, watered down from what you were seeing in the club. Well, well so it's, I say, it's also, mm -hmm. it's also, you know, I remember like Sugar Hill Groove, right? Which mm -hmm. is a band reinterpretation of Juice, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, they, um, they took Catch a Groove, uh, Catch a Group, Catch a Group by Juice. And they right. also took uh, that's a uh, Glide by Pleasure. They yeah. put them together. So, Gang's best record to me, in my opinion. Yeah. But you know, from an MC and and you know, like if you were at an early party and you heard Catch a Groove, that was the jump off. I mean, an mm -hmm. MC, you know, because back then, for people who didn't know, you didn't tell the DJ what to play. You mm -hmm. had to you had to go wherever they went. So mm -hmm. if it was if it was your time to get on that mic and that DJ dropped, you know, catch a groove. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you know that was like that was your time to really shine. That was like one of the hot songs of the night. Dance to the drummer's beat would have been another mm -hmm. one, and mm -hmm. of course uh, um, Edwin Starr's. Um, um, I just want to do my thing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. But but those things got remade by those bands, and that's why I think there was a, you know, kind of like this is cool, but man, this ain't this Perfect ain't the example. real deal. Yeah. Perfect example. I, Busy B, who I, I talk to all, he's a good friend of mine. Busy B, his signature was "Funky President" by James Brown. That's the record that he got down off of. Now Sugar Hill attempted to do that with a song called uh, "Making Cash Money." Right, and they're a great band, and the song is good. But you can't. You, it's no way to play a song exactly like the original. You can come close. Now, if you listen to Freedom, that band played it almost like the original. If you listen to "That's the Joint" by Funky Four Plus One, that band that I just talked about, Skip McDonald, Doug Wimbish, Keeper Blank, they played uh, the song. I think it's called "Rescue Me" by Taste of Honey. That was mm -hmm. used for uh, for Funky Four Plus Ones. That's the joint. You almost can't tell the difference between their version and the, and the Taste of Honey version. Sometimes they might have played a little better, but a song like "Impeach the President," it, it just it doesn't translate well. I could imagine a person who went to the Ecstasy Garage Disco and saw Busy B do his routine to "Impeach the President." I could imagine them buying, making cash money on Sugar Hill Records and being like, "What is this?" So even though they were a great band, it was not always easy to. Uh, to convert those records over. But then at the same time, I always call Enjoy Records, uh, I call Enjoy the Stacks Records to Sugar Hill's Motown, sonically and every other way. They had Pumpkin, the great rest in peace, Pumpkin the drummer and his band playing. And they played a little grittier. And mm. some, of their, some of their beats, just like the Sugar Hill Records, became actual breakbeats. If you listen to Love Rap, yes, listen to any Cold Crush tape, any tape from, from you know, 80, 83, you're going to hear in the background if the DJ doesn't catch the break in time from the south to the west, you're going to hear the Treacherous 3 and Spoonie G in the background of Love Rap. So Love Rap became a breakbeat. Heartbeat became a breakbeat. Just like the message became a breakbeat in, in some ways. Uh, Sugar, uh, Ice Cube has used it. Uh, many rappers have rapped over. So the significance of the band, to answer your question, is not only do they pro provide a great sonic backdrop for early rap recordings in the early rap industry, they play some of those songs well enough that later in 87, 88, when we could afford samplers as, as young producers, we were going back and sampling records from Sugar Hill Records and Joy Records. Well, there you go. And and that's, you know, we, we got to just have you back to do a whole thing on yes. the bands. You know, I know you've been doing uh, a lot of work around that and you know these guys real well. Um, yes. So we look forward to, you know, building with you on that. I want to hear these Keith LeBlanc stories. Anytime. <laughs> oh, know? he's got incredible stories. You got to remember Keith LeBlanc is the one who made the Malcolm X No Sellout record, yeah. um, you know, in probably 83, 84, which, you know, predates P.E. by about three or four years putting, you know, putting the sister Ava Muhammad on their records and, you know, Farrakhan and the good brother Khalid Muhammad, rest, you know, rest in peace. You know, they would put those little, in, you know, snippets in their stuff. But, you know, um, Keith LeBlanc, you know, a, a white guy, put Malcolm X, you know, over a hip hop beat, you know, before anybody did on record. So, yeah, whenever, we, you know, whenever you want to have me back to talk about the band, I love to. Right. And of course, you know, the, the idea of putting speeches over records is a jazz thing. Um, I first heard, 100%. you know, Bambada and those guys do that with breakbeats. That's the first time I heard Malcolm. Exactly. No, first time I heard Malcolm was over a jazz record. Yes. But the first time I heard that in the park 
with over a breakbeat record. And so that was the thing that people would do is play those speeches over breakbeats or instrumentals. Indeed, um, yep. but, but that's all a jazz aesthetic. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. By the time we had equipment as youngsters, I remember being 13, 14 and having a little makeshift system and, you know, playing Richard Pryor records over top of, uh, over beats, making pause tapes. You know, yeah. we, we all, you know, have that DNA a little bit. Jaquan, how do, how can people get your information? Um, the best thing to do at this point, if you go to YouTube, a lot of what I'm doing now, I've converted a lot of my written stuff to things that I narrate and I call them lessons. They're like mini documentaries on these artists. And if you go to YouTube, go to Foundation Hip Hop. That's my channel. And you'll see uh, I have what you call live lessons where I talk to these people live or sometimes I just narrate their stories based on my interviews. You can catch me there or you can go to foundationhiphop.com and catch some of my written work. And I have a couple pieces also on uh, LL's website, Rock the Bell. So I have a, a couple written things, but most of my stuff you can catch through YouTube, uh, Foundation Hip Hop. There you have it, Jaquan, giving us the insight as we celebrate and look back at Duke Boudet, um, a transformative figure coming out of the, the jazz era um, and uh, penning a song that really changed the face of hip hop. We're going to take a break right here on Hard Knock Radio. We'll be right back. Shout out Anita and Davy D. Yeah, right, feel me. Yeah. Honing down at Hard Knock Radio. Radio. Kind of crazy though. Uh, yeah. Oakland stand up. Yeah. Ensemble Big Night Wolves. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Come on, check out. Why every knob just think they hard knock when they ain't going all in and they ain't paid the cost for the fee? Ain't that they made they beats trying to eat till they ready for the steel grade beats they bleed. Real Talk Radio. You are now rocking with the best in the West. West Coast. Monday through Friday. Sing it, Chris. East Coast.
from David Douglas Tag Center. We listen to KBOO, Portland, 90.7 FM. Your investment in community radio can go on with a 